You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. And in a second, I'm going to, uh, this whole month, as, as many of you know, if you've been coming to Sunday School, we take a whole month as a topic. And last month we talked about uh, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And this month is what we call an elective topic, where we either bring in a guest speaker or speak about a topic that is very important important but not crucial to Christianity. And so this month, I'm just really excited. I'm going to introduce in a second here uh, David Grothy, who is the New Life Church marriage and family pastor. And I know some of you probably already know him because maybe he did your wedding or he, you saw him doing a wedding because he does a lot of weddings. He does a lot of things for New Life, especially with marriage and family ministries. And for the last 30 years, is it 30 plus? 30 plus years he's been married to his wife, Becky. That's longer than most of you have even been alive. <laughs> and for the, listen to this. Uh, the last 13 years, he's been a traveling speaker, both nationally and internationally, doing workshops and seminars on marriage and family. And so many of you sitting in here are like, oh, we're going to talk about marriage? I'm not married. Or we're going to talk about family? I don't have a family yet. But don't dismiss this. Think about it this way. Uh, many of us like go to four years of college to prepare for a career, and yet when we get married, a decision that's a billion times more important than just our career, um, we don't do hardly any preparation. And so these next four Sundays, our, uh, David Grothy is going to be talking about marriage and family, and he knows what he's talking about. So let's give a, a very well, warm welcome to David Grothy. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Uh, could I see the hand of the artist who... Bill. Bill. This is outstanding work. Now, I just got to ask, oldest son, youngest son, are these like twin daughters in the middle? Sure. Okay. I just wanted to clarify because they came differently in our family. Uh, Becky and I have twin daughters first that are... Also on the staff here at New Life, some of you may know our daughters. Christine King uh, helps uh, lead the children's team on Sunday mornings. She's the uh, associate pastor for the kids' ministry and is in the hallway, the main hallway, children's check-in. And then our daughter, her, her twin sister, Jessica Sheesby, uh, she's a minute younger than her sister, so I always let Christine have the distinction of being the oldest child. And uh, Jessica is uh, in charge of kids' life, and she has... Uh, a wonderful husband named Brad Sheesby, who is the, also the web developer here at the church and works in the IT department. Christine's husband, David King, many of you may know Dave. He's been a part of the mill as well through the years. Uh, he's a counselor down at Harrison High School and uh, soon to be one of the new members of the faculty at the middle school down there in District 2 as a behavioral specialist. And uh, I guess that means lots of discipline. Our son, Daniel, some of you know, he's associate pastor here at the mill. And Daniel and his wife, Lisa, are expecting their second child in August. And uh, our baby girl is five years younger than Daniel. You know, we had three in 19 months, three children over the span of 19 months. And uh, so we decided that we knew there was another one coming. We just thought we needed to wait a little while and change a few more diapers. So uh, our daughters and uh, have a baby sister named Anna Joy, and she is 21, just had her 21st birthday two weeks ago. And uh, we had a great dad-daughter trip. We went to New York City for three nights and saw three of her favorite shows and, 
and had a wonderful time. And uh, she is a just finished her junior year at ORU and is going back in August to be uh, completing her, her senior year. And she's a blessing. Maybe you'll get to meet Anna if, if you haven't met Anna yet. So uh, my wife Becky and I, 32 years married this summer. And we're so in love and it gets better and better every year. It's been the most wonderful thing. We've been in ministry together uh, all of our married life. I was involved in, in ministry and working at the local church when we got married. And she came right along and was a teacher, full-time <clears throat> teacher in the public schools. And, and the next year we started a Christian school at the, at the church in Tulsa where I was raised. I was born and raised in Tulsa. Lived all of my life there until last July and has been a wonderful transition these last 11 months here in Colorado Springs. Becky was the founding principal of a Christian school that we started there in Tulsa now has 1,500 students, K-12. through And uh, we served there at Victory Christian in Tulsa for a long, long time. I, uh, I'm so honored that Joe would give me this privilege to be with you these four weeks. I hope Becky will be able to join us. She's also uh, on the staff here at the church, and she hosts the guest central reception. So she'll be out there while we're kind of wrapping this up. And, uh, but I do want her to come by sometime this month and greet you. I want you to know from whence I'm co- from where I'm coming from, my, my whole motivation for ministry in marriage and family has been this. My mother and father were World War II veterans. I, uh, I paid real close attention to the 65th uh, anniversary of the Normandy invasion, the D-Day this week because both of my, my mother and father were enlisted in the army during that period of time. My father set up field kitchens all across Europe and, and in Germany in particular in the Rhineland area of that theater of the war. He was a master sergeant and taught cook in Baker School and set up field kitchens and uh, worked in the army in that capacity. My mother worked in the war department before the Pentagon was built. She was in charge of teletypes over the, the cables and communications that went back and forth overseas and uh, worked for the U.S. Army. And then upon retirement, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Um, my mother and father were very hardworking people. They did not attend church. They did not have a relationship with the Lord. They were just the hardest working people I ever knew. And when it came time to come home, which was rare, my father worked 80 plus hours a week all the time. But when my mother and father were in the same zip code, in the same house, they never got along. They, they did not have a happy marriage. Uh, I witnessed... As a kid growing up, I was an only child. They'd been married about six years when I was born. And I I witnessed their verbal abuse. I witnessed their fighting. Now, back when I was a kid in the 60s, we just called it fighting. Today, in, in our culture and in our society, they've got a great big name for it. Now, it's called domestic violence. And I, I witnessed that as a kid. And many nights I would break a fight up or pull my father away or stand between them or sleep with my mother. They, they didn't sleep in the same bedroom. I'd, one night I'd sleep with my mother and put my arm over her and hoping 
a fight wouldn't break out. And then the next night I'd sleep with my dad and kind of have my arm over his waist and hope a fight wouldn't break out, you know. And uh, it was that way. Many t- nights the, the dinner table would just turn over. It would just, the food would be all over the place and coffee cups and butcher knives and hot irons and other appliances would become weapons. And that was the home that I grew up in. And I would go to bed at night quite often. I can remember it very, very vividly in like fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, praying at night. When I get married, Lord, I don't want to live like this. And it became a declaration. I'm not going to live like this. And all I ever really wanted as a kid was a happy home. <clears throat> My mother filed for divorce one, one week after a particularly violent fight, drew blood and and it was a pretty intense situation. And I remember her taking me out of school. And we went and hid in this little seedy motel for uh, days. And she brought the paper to me one morning. And there in, in the, you know, babies born that day, people died that day, people that asked for a marriage license that day, people that filed for a divorce. There's, there was our family name. And it just... It just felt like a, a knife piercing my side. It hurt so bad to see that. And uh, we went home, finally. And I remember seeing my dad sitting on the end of the bed crying. He had just gotten notice of, of the uh, service of the divorce action. My favorite counseling vocabulary as a 9, 10-year-old kid was, can't we work this out? Can't we work this out? And I said that, if I said it once, I said it a hundred times. And I remember standing in my dad's bedroom, him sitting on the end of the bed, my mom kind of standing out in the hallway, looking at them. I was 11 years old. Can't we work this out? Can't we work this out? And for whatever reason, they did not follow through. My mother didn't complete that action. And... uh, I'm, I'm feeling it a little, as I'm standing here telling you, I, I'm there. My mother was always pretty medically, she had some things that we didn't know what was going on. She was always kind of sick and eventually they diagnosed her with a brain tumor shortly thereafter. She was treated and, you know, you can imagine surgery 40 years ago, what that looked like. And it was something that my father and I had to help her with rehabilitation, with learning how to motor skills again and all kind of stuff because the brain tumor was like the size of an orange on her brain. Things got better, surprisingly. Things got got happier, smoother. It seemed like for now, for a little brief window, there was peace in our home. And then my father, who worked in the oil fields all of his career uh, out of the army, was killed in an oil field explosion. Nine men died as the whole thing blew up. And um, I lost my dad just after I turned 15. Now it's just me and mom and uh, trying to figure that out. You know, I, I said they never went to church, but my mother's little sister always came from preschool age and she would take me with her. She would take me to church with her. And so I was always very active on Sundays in Sunday school and then later in church and then later in music and, and working around the church and helping where I could. So I'm trying to do what I can do to be a good son and take care of my mom. A guy across the street worked in a meat market. He said, you need to get a job. Come to the meat market. You can help me in the butcher shop. And So I'm cleaning the meat market every day after school till about 10 o'clock and 
graduate up through the store, socking shelves, cleaning the shelves, sacking groceries, checking groceries, carrying groceries. You know, I worked in a grocery store for the whole duration. And then my senior year, I got a job, a little better job, a little more pay at the veterinary hospital, cleaning the run, the dog runs, after school from 3 till 10 and cleaning the vet practice. I worked, worked till 10 o'clock every day, all through high school. And uh, went to college and got word one summer as I was traveling and singing and ministering with the college group that my mother had been re-diagnosed and you need to come home quickly. And Long story short, three months later she had passed away and, and I, I was still in my teens and, and uh, mom and dad both gone. It was a big kind of a, it was, it was a traumatic uh, situation for me. But I had, I had the word of the Lord, a school chaplain at, at our college at ORU in Tulsa put his finger in my chest the day after my mother died. He said, David, we, we've been praying for you and understand you've lost your mom and, and we're going to pray for you and stand with you. But he's, he just grabbed me. He comforted me and then he grabbed me by the shoulders and he said, now you're free to serve the Lord with all of your heart. So I've been trying to do that. And I never dreamed that prayers... After a big fight on my way to bed at night, Lord, all I ever want, all I want is a happy home. Lord, that's, that's not how I'm going to live. I never really dreamed that it would happen. You know, you pray kind of desperation prayers at times. But the Lord heard my prayer. And it has been uh, the testimony of my life that I have had for the last 32 years the most wonderful family experience that I can I can't describe to you how wonderful it's been and uh, my wife my children have been the fulfillment in many ways of a prayer that a little 10 11 year old kid prayed and I want to share with you my heart today I've got a little uh, outline you can fill in some of these notes and if you if you would like uh, we're going to just go down through it and then take some questions as we we get through to the end but I believe that family is God's idea. Let me ask this question. How many of you here have experienced a divorce in your family? Raise your hands. Maybe about 30, 35%. How many, somebody other than your mom and dad, a sibling or a cousin or an uncle or an aunt or somebody else in your family has experienced a divorce? Even more folks. Let's just put it this way. Happy homes are God's idea. Homes filled with strife and divorce are not God's plan. You need to settle it in your mind because the family is under siege as never before. There are more unhappy homes today in America than ever. Crisis, absentee parents, breakdown of authority, preoccupation with things and stuff, and schedules an inadequate time together, financial pressure, all the hosts of problems that go along with society as we know it today. A commitment to the Bible and the teachings of the Bible will help set in our mind, and I want to just say this, I believe a lot of young people, 20-something people right now, it's been my experience, are, are backing off, are hesitant, are slow to come to the idea of committing to a long-term marriage or a family. 
because of what they've seen, because of maybe the, the model that they haven't had or the model, in my case, that I had, it, what it did for me was it motivated me to go the other way. I had strife that was the only model I ever knew and I just decided I'm not going to have strife in my home. I'm not going to let strife dictate my life. I'm going to live according to God's word. Here's where we are today. The Bible stresses two themes. Number one, man's relationship with God and his relationships with his fellow man or with others. Think about this. Ten commandments. The first four of the commandments deal with man's relationship to God. Go back and read them. The last six of the commandments focus on his relationship with other people. Think about it. Forty percent of the commands deal with us and the Lord and 60% of the commands deal with us and others. And some of us have relationship skills that we've learned as a result of being in a good family environment or good friendships or good uh, examples. Others of us are deficient in relationship uh, skills because we've just never known how they work. Here's what Psalm 133 says. It is a good and pleasant thing when brothers live together in unity. God smiles on unity. The verse 3 of that, it's 1, 2, and 3. It's three verses in Psalm 133. Verse 3 says, For there God commands a blessing. Think about it. You don't have to work on it. You don't have to pray for it. You just live together in harmony and unity. And God says, Be blessed. For there, in the place of unity, God says, I command a blessing. If you want a blessing in a family, you've got to find the place of unity. Place of agreement. A place where you're going to get along. Let me just say this. I do not subscribe to the adage, let's agree to disagree. Let's go along to get along. I don't believe that is biblical. That is not agreement. You've got to find a place in every relationship, especially in a marriage, where you can agree. And yes, we're different. Yes, it's true that sometimes opposites attract. Where I'm weak, you're strong, and that makes me feel good. And... uh, and where you need me, I've got something you, you need and you have something I can benefit from and we're in this relationship because we're different. That's probably a, uh, a more true couple than, than what we see in other you know, couples that are just alike. You know, if, if we're all just alike, somebody's not important. That's why God made us so different and diverse in the body. 1 Corinthians 1 says it this this way. Paul says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord, that all of you agree, underline that in your thinking, agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you. Now, this is just good relationship 101. We're going to apply this down to family here. No divisions that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, we're different but we agree. We have different expressions, but we're in agreement. We have different personalities, but we don't strive. We don't fight. We don't disagree. We find a place where we can agree. Principles of human nature and family relationships, there's four of them, and I just want to give them to you and let you think about them. Number one, all relationships revolve around personal need. If you're writing notes, all relationships revolve around personal need. Think about it. Every relationship that is in the town today, 
there's something in it for somebody. And quite selfishly, most people go to a relationship with the question in mind, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And if you'll be real honest, you look and, and decide who you're going to be friends with, who you're going to work for, who you're going to associate with based upon quite often, well, there's something in it for me. Now, that's not right or wrong. That's just true. Number, uh, number one says, all relationships revolve around personal need. Here's the scripture. The Lord said, it's not good for man to be alone. Guys, let me just spell it out for us really clearly. God took several days and said, it's good, it's good, it's good. Light from darkness, it's good. Water, it's good. Dry land, it's good. Fish in the sea, it's good. Creeping things on the earth, it's good. He made man in this first time that God said it's not good. It's true. God made everything and he said it was good until he got to man and he said it's not good. Finish the sentence, David. That man should be alone. God never intended for anybody to have to go through this entire wonderful creation all by himself with no one to enjoy. I believe that some, some would teach that God made man as a response to a relationship and part of his plan was for relationship with man. Adam had needs that could only be met by forming a relationship with another person and so do you. President of a Christian organization once said, I would much rather deal with numbers than people. When I make mistakes with numbers, all I have to do is get out my eraser. But I don't know what to do when I make a mistake with people. You can become a hermit and just, walk, just wall yourself off from the rest of the world, but you're going to be the loneliest person you've ever met. And, and, and you can ensure that you'll never have a failure in a relationship, just don't ever build any. Number two... Met needs build relationships. Met needs build relationships. So if you want to build a relationship, you need to start meeting some needs. The biblical example for leadership focuses on meeting needs. as Needs of people as they work at fulfilling their role in the family. Now, the third point here is kind of the converse of that. Unmet needs... If met needs build relationships, unmet needs erode relationships. Well, are you saying, David, that you know, having a family and having a marriage and all that is just about meeting somebody's need? Yeah. It's about being unselfish. It's about giving. It's about submitting to your mate as under the Lord, mutually submitting, not just wives submitting. You go back and read that and we'll study it. Ephesians 5 is not saying, wives, submit. No, the verse right before that says, submit one to another as unto the Lord. Wives, here's how you do it. Three verses later, husbands, here's how you submit. Love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You love her and you submit mutually. So mutual submission and unselfishness in a relationship is what it's all about. And so in human relationships, there are four kinds of, of relationships that, that, that develop, some to the positive, some to the negative. 
But look at it in a marriage and family. They can be classified into four basic styles. Number one, there's the relationship of cooperation. Where we agree. Where we cooperate. Where we interact. The second one is the relationship of retaliation. Well, I don't get mad. I get even. And you're always looking to get back for somebody that to somebody that's done you wrong. You're, you're in that mode of, well, I'll just pick my shot here when I get a chance and, wow, I'm going to get back and retaliate. The third kind of relationship is a relationship of domination where, okay, you, you want to be in a relationship with me, do what I say. We'll get along just fine if you do what I say, if you obey me, if you submit to me. And that could be a man or a woman. All the ladies said, oh my goodness, they're listening. Some men are so chauvinist and women are less than nothing. And some cultures of the world treat women with almost zero acknowledgement or respect. And then there are some cultures and some relationships where women are in power. And if you want to have a good relationship with me, do exactly as I say. I have a good friend that has written a book called, she's a corporate executive, and she said, Climbing the Corporate Ladder is the title of the book, and the subtitle is Climbing the Corporate Ladder in Stiletto Heels. Lynette Troyer Lewis, and it's a great read if you've ever uh, wanted to look about uh, a career as a woman in in the business world. She's had a, a wonderful career, wonderful marriage too, where she and her husband are working in ministry together. And then the fourth kind of relationship is, if all of these don't work for you, then you can have a relationship of isolation, which is really no relationship at all. And I know some marriages that fit into each of these categories, a cooperative marriage, a retaliatory marriage, a dominated marriage, one or the other, and a marriage that is just isolated. Go to your corners and wait for the next bell. Number four, I want to give you four rules for right relationships. These are four rules for right relationships. A, attack the problem and not the person. When you're in any kind of a relationship, whether it's a a business relationship or a marriage relationship, I'm not having too much success with this, or a... uh, an organizational interaction. Attack the problem and not each other, not the person. Number two, or B, verbalize your feelings. Talk. Don't just act them out. If you're frustrated, talk about it. Don't just act it out. Don't just retaliate on each other and spew emotion on each other. Talk about it. C, fourth, the third rule is forgive in the place of judging. These, these are all scriptural ideas. I just haven't given you the reference. But it's really better all the way around. It's better to give. It's better to forgive. Giving is forgiving. And then the fourth rule for a good relationship is be committed to give more than you take. In any relationship, give more than you take. Have you ever been in, in one of those give and take relationships? Where you're all give and they're all take? You ever been in a work relationship that's that way? 
in, a, in some sort of a other relationship where, uh, you know, just do as I say and we'll get along just fine. Be committed to give more than you take away from a relationship. There's two scriptural passages here that speak to this idea and you can read them. Luke 6, he says, give and it will be given. This is giving a forgiveness. Notice in the context. Don't condemn, you'll not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give. Give this and you will be given to you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over. This is a, a measurement of your ability to extend mercy, to extend forgiveness. Then Romans 12, I, wrote, I read this today and if you come to the second service, we'll probably read it again. This is a wonderful passage on how we relate to each other, especially in the body of Christ. Now, what does a Christian family look like? What does your family experience? Uh, could we have those couple of microphones? Let's just see if we can get some uh, feedback here. I want you to, I told you a little bit about my family. It wasn't necessarily a Christian family. We didn't attend church together. My mom and dad would come occasionally if their son had a solo or was in the Christmas program or... Uh, I don't even remember that my mother was there when I got baptized. Uh, I don't think she was. What did your family, what does a Christian family look like? Those of you that have had this experience, what do you think? Or maybe you've not had a Christian family. What does a Christian family look like? Raise your hand. They've got microphones either side. Yeah, right there. Um, I was actually adopted when I was um, a baby. So Real loud. Um, I don't really remember my birth parents. All I know is they, I think my birth dad drank. We don't know. We know he had an anchor problem, so, and then... Stay on the microphone. Um, I have my parents now, I guess, it's nice, because, like, we'll talk about God, they talk to me about God, and they help me when I'm going through hard times, I can tell them about it, and they'll be there for me, so it's actually really nice to have a Christian family. How long have you been in this home, since you were a baby? Um, I think since I was, like, two months old since I was a baby, so... Yeah. Yeah. Who, what, is your, what does your Christian family look like? Raise your hand. They got a mic for you. Right here. Um, actually, my family started out broken. Um, my parents, my mom divorced my dad when I was three, and they got remarried when I was five. And same thing, my father was an abusive alcoholic, and he's my stepdad, and he's the only dad I really ever knew growing up. Well, there was a lot of heartbreak, a lot of abuse all around constantly. And then um, the great thing about God is that even though we went to church every single Sunday and I would go home and fight, eventually, um, through persistent prayer, God started to move my mom's heart. And through that, it started to spread. And whether we realized it or not, five years later, we all sat down at the dinner table and confessed that previously we had all given our lives to Christ at the same time without knowing it. Hmm. And God was able to restore my entire family. And they're still together. And we absolutely love being with each other. There's so much respect. There's so much love. And there's just so much tenderness all around. So That's a, a lot good of testimony. It was awesome. Praise the Lord. Yes, back there. Hi, David. Well, my family growing up was anything but Christian. Um, in fact, I actually still have nightmares about some of the things that have happened to me growing up. But basically what I know about a Christian home, I've just learned from watching your family, from watching the families in this church. And I know that the parents are God-loving people. 
They cover their kids with prayer. They're careful with their, with their words. They're not impulsive. They understand the love of God. And that's the model that I have. Thank you. That's great. One more? Anybody? Right here. Hi, I'm Erica, Joe's wife. Um, I was raised in a Christian home. Um, my mom actually had a Catholic background. My dad was Assemblies of God. But um, right around the time that they met, my mom gave her life over to the Lord completely. And um, so when they did get married, they were both Christians, and they raised us up in that. And um, I just had a blessing of having their example for the last 30 years of just being wonderful parents and um, supportive of us and praying for us and um, helping us make decisions, like praying through things with us, giving us advice. My mom is, I can say, my best friend. I call her probably three times a week. And um, she's just always there for me, supporting me in prayer. And um, they've just been a huge blessing. And I have two older brothers, and we've just all been able to grow with each other through everything. We had family prayer time, um, probably not necessarily every night. We always had dinner together at the dinner table, but um, I remember like midweek church services, we would um, pray together on the way home as a family. And um, my parents were both very active in the church. My dad was a worship leader and my mom um, kind of hospitality like your wife. And um, would do like meals of love and coordinating. And um, they're just very hospitable. Our house was the home that everyone wanted to come to after prom or whatever. They just um, <laughs> always housed everyone. We always had like three extra kids with us. So, yeah, great. great family. I love them. Thank you for sharing. Now, hold on to those mics. We'll get some more questions and answers or some response later. But four things. What does a Christian family look like? Do you think a Christian family has an alarm clock that goes off at 6 a.m. plays Amazing Grace or, you know, what, is, is, it, is it ideal? Is it this kind of unrealistic expectation of, of, of what spiritual life is? No, let me just say this. Number one, a Christian family is real. They have sin, they have pain, they have sadness, they have disappointment, and they are freely acknowledged. Uh, you know, a Christian family that hurts can freely acknowledge that. A Christian family that has a problem in the family or a child that's going through something, uh, even as a little kid, they can acknowledge that and embrace that and draw strength from each other in the middle of the reality of life. Number two, a Christian family spends time together. Now, just take my word for it. Quantity and quality of time are two things we hear a lot about. Well, I'm not, I'm not interested in quantity of time. I just want quality time. No, kids spell love this way, T-I-M-E. So spending time together is a definite part of supporting each other. In the middle of that time, they're encouraging each other, and they're sharing victories, and they're sharing defeats. I just want you to know that I've been to every basketball game I could possibly make. I've been to every soccer game, every softball tournament, every, you know... You name it, baseball, tra- I've, we've gone to thousands of games over the last 27 years with our kids. And every one of our kids, when they could, made every, every other kid's game. 
and every other performance or every other activity. We were always there together supporting each other. And when somebody didn't have a great game, we're there to support you too. When somebody didn't have a great performance or maybe they didn't get the scholarship they were hoping for, the recognition, or they didn't make the honor society, whatever it was, we were there to share all of it together. Number three, a real family, Christian family, maintains high morals and spiritual standards. Now, what does this have to do with family? It's kind of a personal deal with you, okay? My life is my life. No, a family is a family. We've got the same blood, the same genes, the same parents, the same siblings. You know, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. And so a family is, that's going to be Christian is going to maintain a high moral and a high spiritual standard. You're going to attend church. You're going to go have devotion to the Lord, but it's not limited to a time and a place. Let me just take the pressure off of you. There would be a pressure to feel like you've got to have family altar or you've got to have family devotions every morning at 5.30. Or you've got to get on your knees and pray together as a family every night before you shut the lights off. Those are all great things. But the condemnation comes when you miss that Thursday night of family prayer. No, we live a lifestyle everywhere we go, every morning, every night, every day. We're talking about it, and we'll share this when we talk about children. Deuteronomy is great because you talk about it on the road, when you're walking, when you're sitting down, when you're lying down, when you're sitting at the table. You're just talking about it all the time. And a Christian family shares their devotion to God, but it's not limited to a time or a place. We live that way everywhere we are. And then a Christian family deals with normal problems. From a Christian perspective. This is what differentiates a Christian family on the block and a family that doesn't know God. They're going to have the same problems. The Bible says it rains on the just and on the unjust, the same. His mercy and His grace are all extended. How we deal with it, what perspective we take, is what makes us distinctive. We have mortgages, we have housework, we've got cars to fix. I yesterday had a grill to clean, I had a garage to sweep. I'm looking down, the neighbors all got the same deal I got. But I'm living my life through the lens of the grace of God, of the mercy of the Lord that's new every morning. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. I've got salvation flowing through my, I've got abundant life. Jesus came to give me life and more abundantly. So I'm going to live my life from that perspective. And that's what makes me different and my family different. When they make decisions... They ask, what would God say about this? What would God say about this when they make decisions about their family? What does a family do to communicate the message to all the family members that Jesus is the head of the home? I just feel like kids are such a beautiful gift. This morning in the service, we dedicated six uh, babies, six families had children in the first service and we had them down, you know, and it's just, it's just the most wonderful thing. It's, it's really the, the, the fulfillment of Psalm 128. The Message Bible says this, Don't you know that children are God's best gift? So families that see children as a blessing and not a burden are going to have a different perspective. Children are not a burden. They don't cramp your style. They don't ruin your career. They don't take away from all your free time. Children, yes, they do all that, but... 
They don't do it because they're a burden. They do it because they're a blessing. And God's, it's God's blessing in your life. So, some families display that sign at their house that reads, Jesus is the head of this home, the unseen guest at every meal. It takes a willingness to yield to the lordship of Jesus in every aspect of family living. You know, my wife and I received a wedding gift 32 years ago. A lot of wedding gifts, but this one from her cousin was a picture, a portrait of Jesus, you know, on velvet. Kind of one of those. You know, it's, it's the Lord looking toward heaven and a radiant light shining down on his face. And, and, and this picture came as a wedding gift and I looked at my wife and I said, we're not hanging that in this house. She said, oh, it's from my cousin Darlene. We've got to hang it. No, we're not putting that in this house. And we had a little, our first fight was over opening the wedding gifts. <laughs> we can't hang that in this house. I'm not going to... And she finally got to the, and on my, my little tender spot, and I finally told her, I said, there was one of those pictures hanging in my house, and it never meant a thing when I was a kid. It didn't mean anything. There was still fighting and blood drawn and fists and, and food being thrown. And, you know, a picture of Jesus hanging over on the wall. I'm thinking, what's wrong with this picture? So we finally came to a, uh, a little bit of a compromise there was a, a coat closet right inside our house and I hung it inside the coat closet right there. You open the door and it's hanging right there. So Becky was able to tell her cousin, thank you for the picture, it's hanging in our house. Here's what it takes. It takes the power of a positive example. You've got to have, to be a Christian family, you've got to have a willingness to yield to his lordship and that example, the positive example of the love of God. We look through the Bible, we see all these principles. We're not going to cover them all today, but maybe we'll get to a few of them between now and the end of the month. It also takes unselfish servanthood. If you're going to be a good husband, a good dad, a good mother, a good wife, you're going to have to decide that it's unselfish servanthood that will put you there. All of these things. Some parents consume most of their available time away from work to make sure their kids play sports teams, music lessons, get the medical and dental appointments, they visit amusement parks, eat together, nice restaurants, all that sort of family thing. We've done all that. And, and it's been very rewarding. All of these things are good, but sometimes God is either not included in family activities or he's relegated to a lower priority. Notice the quote from Jonathan Edwards. Great Awakening, every Christian family ought to be as if it were a little church consecrated to Christ, wholly influenced and governed by his rules. Take heed that it not be with any of you as it was with Eli of old, who reproved his children but restrained them not, and that by this means you do not bring the same curse on your families as he did. Pastor Mel Waters here in the church is writing a book it's called How to Pastor Your Family. And I think Edward's quote that every family should be as it were a little church is great. Now I've given you my, my favorite verses here. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, it's builders labor in vain. A Christian family is first of all built upon the rock of revelation of who Jesus is. Who do men say that I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. There's a rock to build something on. And unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. So notice, 
in its various translations, except the Lord or unless the Lord, the Hebrew might be more literally translated, if not the Lord, then who's going to build the house? If it's not God, if your house isn't built on God, then you don't have a house. Um, he does not build, establish our home, our household. It, if he does not build it, it will not be built. If he does not guard and protect us, we will not be safe. This psalm reminds us of the fact, this fact, and encourages us to consciously acknowledge our dependence, put our trust in him rather than in ourselves. Now, concluding here, there's a story of the Ark of the Covenant. You know it's the one that carried the commandments and the tablets and other temple important things that were symbolic of the presence of the Lord. And this is not Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of presence of the Lord. This is the glory, the presence of God. The Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. Notice. And the Lord blessed him and his entire house. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark. Here's one of God's pictures. A picture of a home, what? That is blessed by the presence of the Lord. I want to encourage you to get a vision in your heart for a home that embodies God's life. A home that is a haven of God's presence. A place where you come and open the door and you can just sense there's something different here. There's, there's, there's a spirit here. There's a, there's a fresh breath. There's a, a sweet smell. There's a wonderful something in this place. And you need to know it's because God is there. Many beautiful pictures in the Bible of the lives of men and women of God. But here we find a picture of a home. A home. Blessed him and his entire household. I'd rather have it said of my home than anything else this world can give. I would rather have God's blessing upon my home than all that the world can bestow. Riches are fleeting. The only thing that's constant in life is change. Your friends will be different 25 years from today than they are today. Your, your life will be different 25 years from today than it is today. But your family will be, will be a constant. You know, you think about this. Uh, you get married, and I've seen it a hundred times. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in the life of my children. You have people that stand up with you at your wedding. Best man, maid of honor, groomsmen, bridesmaids. And you think about, these are my best buds. You look at the picture 20 years later and you think, what was her name? I want to encourage you, your family is going to be with you a lot longer than many of your friends. That's why it's so important to build relationships with family. We just spent a week in California, a little vacation, had to go down for a wedding, as a matter of fact, in Southern California. And we spent three nights with our dear dear friends of 35 years a guy that stood up with me in my wedding and we've been very close for 35 years Becky's two brothers I'm still very close to they were in my wedding my best man dear dear friend but he's gone away from the truth of God's word my relationship with him now is strained at best I look at friends that have come and gone but family will always be family. That's why it's so important to strengthen these family relationships. Proverbs 10 says, The blessing of the Lord brings wealth. 
What does that mean? Makes rich. The blessing of the Lord gives you a rich life. And he adds no trouble, no sorrow to it. This is what I want to cast this vision for your family. The blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Have you had some hard times in 32 years of marriage? Yes. When Becky found out she was pregnant with the twins, we'd been married three and a half years. We had a house, had a mortgage payment. We both were working. I was at the church as a worship pastor and uh, Becky was the elementary principal of the Christian school. She's now nine months size in her fifth month. She's, she's huge. Twins. The doctor says to her, you know, you want to carry those babies the whole time you can, as long as you can. Probably be good if you just went home, put your feet up, and maybe retired from the job. Becky was making $3,500 a year more than I was at that moment. And our income was cut by 60%. She was making more money than I was. Principals make more money than musicians, I think. <laughs> and what did we do? We're not even, babies haven't even been delivered yet. What are we going to do? I just want to say to you, we never missed a house payment. We never missed a meal. God was faithful. I don't know. I look back on it. I still don't know how we did it. But we went for five years with one income. After the girls were born, Daniel was shortly thereafter. More than five years, seven years we went with one income, having been at that two-income level the first three years of our marriage, and God met every need of our life. We even bought another house in the middle of that. You know, two babies and two strollers and two beds and two high chairs. We had to move. And then a third one came right after. So I want to encourage you. God will meet all your needs. The blessing of the Lord will make rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. God's blessings are not merely good wishes, but the conferring of prosperity and blessedness so that when God blessed Obed-Eben's home, Edom's home, there was peace, health, abundance, outwardly and inwardly. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your, give yourselves to your husbands. And children, obey your parents. These are the three cornerstones of family. Husbands, love your wife. Wives, give yourself to your husbands. And children, obey your parents. Those are the three Legs of the stool, if you will, the, 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 the three standards of a home, a happy home. Now this last page, a model home is one in which the people, the, I'm sorry, in which the precepts of God's word are fulfilled and obeyed. I'll say it again, a model home is one in which the precepts of God's word are all fulfilled and obeyed. Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6 are Paul's culmination, his summary of a happy home. Wives, husbands, submit yourself to one another as unto the Lord. Wives this way, giving yourself to your husband as to God. Husbands, you submit this way, loving her like Christ laid down his life for the church. And then in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, Children, obey your parents. This is right. Honor your father and mother. Notice, that was the first commandment that had a promise attached to it. What was the promise? You honor mom and dad and it'll go well with you that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. We'll get to this more later. But the command to honor your father and mother is not just given to fourth graders. It's given to adult children as well. And I want to just tell you, there's no greater blessing that I've seen. My mom and dad both have been gone from this earth 39 and 35 years respectively. 
I've not had any parents for 39 years on the earth. But some of my dearest friends are in that season now where their children are being raised and moving forward and out of school. And now the privilege of my friends is to serve their mom and dad in their later years. In California, I just couldn't believe it. My dear friend who was in my wedding, I'm watching him and his wife now move. Their children are all now in college and, and, and married. So one of them's married and the other two in college. And now they're reaching back to care for their parents who are now in their early 80s and middle 80s. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. That's biblical. We'll get to that later. He says, Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. The entire family belongs to God. Big letters. The entire family belongs to God. And everyone endeavors to help the other in his or her spiritual life. We're there for each other. Moms are serving dads and dads are serving sons and daughters and moms are loving children and now grandchildren. The result, because you've made the Lord, Psalm 91, which is my refuge, even the most high, your habitation, there shall be no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come near your dwelling. Notice, those are results of serving God and fearing the Lord. Isaiah 44, I'll pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I'll pour out my spirit on your offspring. On your children. What a blessing. Children being blessed by God. And a blessing on your descendants. A blessed home is a peaceful home. Proverbs 17.1 Better is a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. I'd rather have a bowl of soup and a, and a crust of bread. A little butter. My wife would like to have a little bread with her butter. I would just like to have some butter with my bread. Better is a dry crust with peace. And you know, a peaceful home is a blessed home. Now, microphones are here. Questions we're going to dismiss right away before we pray. I want to give you a chance to respond, ask questions, make observations. Raise your hands. Anybody? Not all at once. All right, anybody? Going, going. Thank you, Joe, and thank you so much. Next week, we're going to cover uh, a little bit more about relationships between a husband and a wife and uh, how that works and how that practically plays out. Let me pray for you, and then we'll dismiss. Father, thank you for these that are here and for the call of God that we all carry to carry your glory, to, to shine your light, to be salt and light, and to be the love of God. We have this treasure in these earthen vessels, Lord, that the excellent power may be of you and not of us. Let us be filled with that excellent power and may it translate into a a godly family life, a godly relationship. Thank you, Lord, for for giving us the desires of our heart, not just putting them in there, Lord, but bringing them to pass, fulfilling us in the desires of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give David Grothy a big hand. That was good. Did you learn something today? Was that good? Oh, yeah. All right. Well, everyone, you are dismissed. David Groth, we will be back all, uh, all of this month. So have a God-blessed week.